0: Thinking basketball podcast. My name is Ben. Today, very special guest, Neil Payne from 538.com, stops by. Neil runs the sports podcast over at 538. He's also a writer there, writes about basketball and many other sports. He's previously been uh, at Sports Reference, where he ran the basketball blog back in the day. He's done work for the New York Times, ESPN Insider, just kind of a legend. Uh, in these circles. So I'm super happy to have him on. It was a long time overdue. And today's conversation, we will get to Ben Simmons and Jimmy Butler and some of the stuff going on with the 76ers right now. We also touch on some insights he had on his time from the Hawks, but the meat of the conversation is really around this idea of the battle for the soul of basketball, the three-point revolution, the role the officials have, the Rockets, James Harden, extreme styles, and something to do with the airspace of buildings. So without further ado, here's my chat with Neil Payne of five thirty eight. Neil Payne, thanks so much for joining me. Very glad to have you. Thanks for having me on, Ben. It's been a, it's been a long time coming.
1: It has, yeah. This is a long time first time.
0: Long time first time, yeah. So let let's start. Have you been enjoying yourself some NBA playoffs?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I think especially once we reach the second round, um, this is the round we've all been waiting for.
0: Yeah. So let's let's dive right in on the Rockets and Warriors. Actually, my latest video on my channel from Jordan Sperber is on the Rockets and Warriors. But you I mean, this year you and I have already talked about this in the background. You wrote a piece on James Harden and his scoring give me give me some of your thoughts let's dive in on what's going on there
1: well you know uh, yeah when we um, I spoke with you for a story a couple months ago I guess uh, when Harden was in the midst of that streak of uh, consecutive 30-point games which was pretty incredible and it um, harkened back to Wilt Chamberlain uh, that was the name that kept coming up because he was sort of vying for, I think he ended up actually falling short of the number of consecutive 30-point um, games that Wilt had. But it was like those two were so far out in front of anyone else, and we hadn't seen something like that. Uh, and it seemed like something that we wouldn't have seen um, again before someone like Harden came along. And so that was sort of the genesis of our conversation around that. And it really just sort of came around to this idea that Harden was the best combination we've seen of efficiency and volume in a single scorer. uh, And, and especially in the context of a team that was doing well offensively, because that doesn't always happen. Uh, And so he's been sort of a, a object of all of our fascination, I think for a long time, but in this particular series, he hasn't been that at that level of efficiency, uh, and obviously that you know it's not a surprise that uh, given that the Rockets are down 2-0 in the series. Um, but I think also he has been in the crosshairs of everybody's conversations about this sort of intersection of the uh, using the officials to try to uh, gain efficiency, right. and and you know what is the is that within the boundaries of this, of the rules of basketball, but also more the spirit of basketball? And, and I've seen a lot of the sentiment after he, he didn't get the calls that he necessarily wanted really in either game, but especially at the end of game one against the, the Warriors. And then there was this report that the Rockets had sort of itemized all of the, all of the times the officials had wronged them in last year's game seven. Um, and, and sort of, it was the most Rockets possible way that you could respond to a loss right. like that by, by going line by line and just saying like, they, you know, these calls were missed and they cost us this number of points. And in response to all of that, uh, I saw a lot of reactions that were very anti-harden um around the internet and around sort of the chat, the the sports chatter. Uh, and it, they seem to come from this place that like a player of hardened stature and skill should be above some of the things that he does to try to draw fouls, that these types of activities should be reserved for, and this kind of efficiency gaming and, and, and trying to get every possible edge should be reserved for players who are, you know, just trying to carve out a role in the league or something like that. Not for players that, you know, could, could be, Great without having to do all of these theatrics, and I find that very fascinating from just a basketball fan standpoint, but also as a as a stat head that has advocated for some of these efficiency, um, you know, the efficiency minded way of looking at the game, if you will.
0: Well, it's it's fascinating. Uh, First of all, going back to what you said at the top, he did end up finishing the season with the highest scoring rate per possession. In NBA history. He got over. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I looked that up. He actually did get over 36 points per 75 possessions played, which is better than anyone. So whatever, whatever system uh, he's, he's hacked into is working. But I also think, you know, you're, you're speaking to something, which is really fascinating to me from the perspective of players, not only taking advantage of the rules, but just being crafty as players. So an earlier podcast I did this year talked about uh, guys who became superstars who blew through their ceilings and I think Harden is one of the great examples of that no one really right no one really thought we'd be sitting here a decade later comparing him to Kobe Bryant and you know names with Wilt Chamberlain and Michael Jordan when it comes to scoring and scoring efficiency and of course uh, as you mentioned in your piece on 538 I mean he's also creating a lot of shots his offenses are really good no one thought this and to me, it's it. I think what's happening is you have his craftiness as a player. That is to say, um, angles using his using his strength, uh, baiting people with sort of asynchronous dribbles. Uh, all all of the stuff that players can do that can overcome athleticism with guile. And at what point does that bleed into hacking into the rules and taking advantage of the rules and exploiting the officials? And I think we are like sitting deep in the very muddy soup of that <laughs> dance
1: oh yeah absolutely i mean even you know something like the Eurostep, which wasn't his invention um i think maybe manny ginobili invented it he was certainly the first one that i kind of remembered doing it with any kind of consistency right he
0: he popularized it um i have I have a very clear Euro step in a YouTube video going back to the early 80s. And then wow. the, there are, yeah, and there, are, well, it was instantly called a travel just for perspective. <laughs> um, and today it wouldn't even have been close to a travel. Uh, and then there are even people who I've heard say the way Elgin Baylor, like maybe what Elgin Baylor did with those long strides when he got near the rim was kind of the precursor to the long stride Euro, but Manu definitely came in and popularized it.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a great point, bringing it back to some of those older guys, because we um, we, we tend to think of this as being sort of a recent phenomenon. Uh, and people always complain about, it. you know, as more, as more time passes, the more that people complain, traditionalists complain about steps being taken and travels not being a thing anymore. And I guess you could maybe even go back to like the 80s or the 70s and find people who are like these kids these days are, are get
0: taking off my lawn
1: steps. Right. Get off my lawn with that traveling. And um, but I do think it's interesting that Harden has sort of, you know, he he has taken that as, you know, he is the standard bearer for that in the league, you know, maybe. Giannis and some of these other guys are right up there with him, but he also, you know, the step back is another form of sort of looking at the rules and figuring out how many steps do I have? The The, the rules not necessarily specifying, does it have to be in the direction of the basket? Oh, I can take it. I can take my extra step in the, in the opposite direction of the basket if I want to free up space. Okay, I'll do that then. You know, and so some of these, um, you know, interpretations of the rules, it, it is sort of, I think it rubs... Uh, A certain type of fan the wrong way because that just seems like it's against the spirit of the game even if it's within the letter of the game but then you think you know how how else are you gonna innovate and from the Rockets' perspective, this is what I find so compelling about this series in general: is that it is sort of it is being framed as this sort of war for the for the soul of basketball, where you have one team that was is basically winning with not all that unconventional playing style. I mean, I know we think of the Warriors as being the the ultimate three point shooting team; they've been surpassed in that regard, certainly by Houston, but maybe by other teams. Um, and and you know, Kevin Durant is taking mid-range shots in in crucial late-game situa- situations in the same manner as every superstar you know that preceded him in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, but the Warriors are groundbreaking more for just how they assembled their talent and, and the sheer amount of it that they assembled. So then you have that you know going up against this other team that is outgunned in terms of talent uh, in, in this particular series, and they're trying to find ways on the court to be able to sort of skirt around things and, and innovate. And I think that that's a really interesting um, juxtaposition of the two teams. Who should we be rooting for? The team that innovated in terms of finding a way to assemble more talent than any other team ever or a team that's innovating in trying to bend the rules to find a way to do more with less talent I don't know the answer to that
0: what's your what's your feeling on the general public's leaning uh uh, you know answer of that question like which direction do you think they're leaning in
1: it's really interesting that it seemed to be, particularly after the the non calls late in game one, and then the uh, the the memo, the whatever it is, the audit, uh, if, if we could call it that, that that, that kind of came out about the Rockets um, uh, and, and their note to the league. It seemed like public perception actually was siding on the Warriors' side, which is is really incredible to me because the Warriors have become very hated. Uh, especially after uh, picking up Kevin Durant and and a lot of people are tired of seeing them winning. So I think it really speaks volumes about the distaste that the general public has for some of the ways that the Rockets and Harden in particular play basketball uh, and the aesthetics of it, that they would side with this historic dynasty that teams that, that people tend to kind of hate that, that level of a team. Over the Rockets, who you would think would be the plucky underdog that we should be rooting for, you know, standing up to this juggernaut uh, of a Warriors team.
0: Very interesting <laughs> take. You know, one one thing I hear all the time—you've probably heard it over the years—is that analytics are ruining the game. And, oh sure. And right. And I've always I've always taken that to mean. Um, you know you're you're getting too much into the sausage making you're you're stripping things down uh, even though you're being more nuanced and more detailed it's almost a reductionism that takes the fun out of it and in a way what houston's doing is that personified on the court right mm-hmm. It it's taking those things as you were describing the the war for the soul of basketball there what i kept thinking of is houston has a level of extremism that crosses a certain line for fans you know uh, and I get into this in this latest or Jordan gets into this in this latest video on my channel, but basically the idea that some isolations might be okay, some exploitations might be okay, but when you do it forty or fifty or sixty times a game, it's dry and repetitive and mundane and and boring and you know to paraphrase a lot of people online, they can't stand it. so mm-hmm. you know even even as you were. Talking through that, one of the things I was connecting was how many great players who are wily and witty and and things of this nature the, with the way they approach the game, how many players have been getting away with small things over the years that irked fans? I mean, Reggie Miller, right, used to, used to do this all the time with his, <laughs> with his little leans and flops and contact accentuation. And you could argue some of this leg kick stuff that has resurfaced yes. in this series goes back to... Reggie Miller exploiting leg kicks on jump shots. And it's like that has been present for a very long time in the game, but I'm not sure it's been this extreme uh, as what we're seeing with Houston right now.
1: Yeah, and maybe that's something where, you know, uh, the villains of the present always sort of seem less villainous as time passes. And so we sort of now think of Reggie Miller, and, and uh, he, I think it's helped him that he's also been a commentator. And that sort of, you know, makes you more of a, a personable, you know, image that people have when they think of you. But I think also, yeah, with the passage of time, you sort of, forget about some of those things that annoyed you about a player and you only remember sort of the great moments i so i don't know if that will happen with harden or you know is he going to be seen as this guy that represents this turning point in the game of basketball especially if people start you know emulating not necessarily uh to the same degree but i think There's plenty of room, and maybe uh, you would agree with this, that it seems like there's more room to grow in terms of taking more threes uh, as a percentage of all of a team's shots, uh, especially across the league, maybe the Rockets don't have that much more <laughs> room to to add threes. But I mean, if you just look at the league averages, you would expect that there would be some kind of diminishing returns that we would hit eventually, where three-point percentage would start to go down significantly when we hit you know peak three-point shooting, and think, oh. Well, we've kind of maxed out. We can't add more threes. But three-point percentage has actually been pretty steady going back, not just you know the past few years, but it, it was it was thirty-five point five percent league-wide this year. It was thirty-five point six percent league-wide in two thousand five. Despite the fact that we're now taking more than twice as many threes per game as a league uh, in twenty nineteen than we did fifteen years ago. So to me, it that indicates that there's a lot more room for teams to keep ever escalating this, this trend of taking more threes. And they'll probably also at the same time, uh, start to sort of try to exploit more, um, you know, trying to draw whistles and trying to get to the free throw line because it's all part of the same efficiency mindset. Uh, and, and, um, yeah, there, there's a great book out this week by uh, Kirk Goldsberry, who's one of my colleagues. Yes, I would highly recommend it to. Um, uh, I'm sure your your listeners already know about it and, and are, are probably reading it as we as we speak. They're ahead of me but on makes, it. I'm jealous. Yeah, well, he makes a great point in that book that um, you know, as much as we talk about three point shooting and Curry and and people like Dame Lillard have have sort of revolutionized that uh, and and are making shot and making shots and also being considered open and having to be considered open by defenders at places on the floor where you never would have thought someone would be considered to be open just five to 10 years ago that even despite all of that, the most efficient play in basketball is one of Harden's three-point shooting fouls drawn. Right. Uh, th- that yields so many more points per possession, expected points per possession. And part of that is because he's a great free-throw shooter too. Um, but just him drawing a foul is better than Steph Curry shooting a wide-open three. And if you if you think about that and let that sink in for a second, it just makes sense that you're going to see teams try to emulate that And maybe they won't be as good as Harden because I think, like you said, he's maybe the most wily player of all time uh, in terms of just his his knack for knowing how to get contact and how to sell that contact to the officials. But at the same time, I, I just don't think that we've seen sort of the peak level of teams trying to play this mori Ball style across the whole league. And so I think when history judges Harden, they might look back at him and see him as sort of the guy that that uh, ushered in this era. And if you don't like the era, then I I don't think that history might judge him kindly in that regard.
0: Well, the the change and how extreme it's been after, you know, 60 some odd years of the game for what we've seen in the last few years is absolutely incredible. And to your point, if you believe the numbers, I certainly do. I just think it's a matter of coaches implementing it. If you believe the numbers, the three-point shooting is going to c- continue to rise in volume. There's still more to be had there. And one of the things that uh, Kirk was on with Zach Lowe this week in a fantastic pod, if if anyone hasn't checked that out, one of the things that they were discussing was this idea of moving either moving back the three-point line or things you can do to kind of disincentivize what Houston and other teams have unlocked. By, by the way, in that pod, Kirk also mentions um, the fact that a, f- a foul on a James Harden three-pointer is not just better than a Stephen Curry wide open three, it's better than a Giannis <laughs> wide open dunk in transition. Dunk. By dunk. Yeah. By a large amount. It's somewhat horrifying the way he phrased it. Uh, but so, I don't know, do you have thoughts? This is something that I've been noodling around on a lot in the last week or so since the book came out about Either moving the three point line back, taking away the corner three, uh, or any other kind of rule change that the league could move to that maybe would bring a little bit more balance back to the game.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that those are are, are two great ideas because, you know, the corner three has been long known to be this sort of efficiency hack. And I, I think we've seen, you know, I think the Spurs were one of the first teams to sort of just park a guy in the corner and uh, make hay off of that. I think uh, Bruce Bowen at, at one point was shooting like much higher on corner threes than he was on free throws uh, <laughs> at one point uh, in, that, in the Spurs dynasty. And so, you know, I think something to sort of change the geography of the court so that you don't have people just sort of their whole job is to camp out uh, and, and stay in one area to, to make them actually move would be nice. Uh, and and I'm intrigued about the idea of moving back the three-point line because it would sort of give all, more value to the Dame Lillards and the Steph Currys of the world because those are guys that still can make a very good percentage, a shockingly high percentage for, yeah. uh, for, for somebody who, you know, fans like us who grew up in in the 90s and and sort of looked at uh, three-point shooting in a certain way, to think of these guys making nearly 40% or in some cases over 40% from... 25, 26 feet uh, out is just mind-boggling. So I think in some ways it would take away these guys that can only make shots just like, you know, uh, uh, six inches behind the three-point line, and it would still give uh, the the credit where it's due to the guys that legitimately can shoot really long threes. So I like both of those ideas. I even liked Kirk had an idea in that book about uh, as an aspect of home court advantage, letting teams draw their own three-point line. Yeah, that's pretty uh, extreme. Wherever they (laughs) they want it. I think that's a fun idea. I I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, But I think you're always going to see weird, you know, sort of an imbalance by virtue of the fact that, these shots are inherently not going to be priced correctly. If you look at the the probability of the shot going in versus the amount that it's worth, the only real way that you would ever be able to kind of make that um, fair and make teams be indifferent between shooting from all over the court would be some kind of system where you put in like a value on, you know, various squares of the court. uh, And, you know, from, I mean, this would be ridiculous. You'd never be able to do it and track it, but you know, some shots should be worth, you know, 1.7 points if they go in, (laughs) some shots should be worth like 2.3, you know, with the goal of always kind of keeping the, the average shot being worth some fixed amount. Um, but again, that's like totally infeasible. Uh, and, and I think it all comes back to the league didn't really, uh, and it, it wasn't even necessarily the NBA at first, it was the ABA. It was some of these precursor leagues, um, that the, these rival leagues that put in the three point line initially, and, and they just put it in a place that sort of kind of made sense at the time. 50 years ago. And now we're seeing the consequences of keeping the, the line in the exact same spot, despite shooters getting way better, athletes getting way better, the players getting bigger. Everything about the game has changed. And at the same time, we're seeing, you know, we're sort of beholden to this decision that people made about where to put the three point line uh, a half a century ago.
0: So it's interesting. I mentioned this exact thing on the Combo Court podcast last week. I was on another podcast and was asked about this. And I said, the interesting sort of folly that was made that no one figured out for 50 years was you have a shot that's worth one and a half times the conventional shot. Uh, It would be like an 11-point touchdown in football, right? (laughs) Right. And you have this shot, and yet it is not one and a half times harder to make. As difficult, right? Exactly. Yeah. So any any shot that's nearby has an expected value that's very close to the actual three-point shot. And that's why in the last few years, people have wisened up to the idea that... Don't take an 18-footer or a 22-footer or certainly don't take a 23-footer. Just get behind the line and you're unlocking all this expected value. And that's what's happened to all these great offenses. My question...
1: Well, I was going to say it's actually amazing to see how much more conscious players are of this, and and not just young players who have been no, you know known the three point line, and not just guards, but you'll have uh, like Mark Gasol in in the game last night. A loose ball would be coming out to him, and he'd be standing just inside the three point line, and he instinctively sort back. of knew to step back yeah. and receive that loose ball outside the three point line. And this is a guy that wasn't shooting threes at all five years ago, and yet has turned himself into a three-point shooter in order to survive in the league. That's really telling when you have big men who are so conscious that on a on a, on a broken play, they're still hyper-focused on where that line is on the court.
0: So I, I actually want to get to that game and that series uh, in a second, but my, my question around all of this discussion with the three-point shot and the Rockets and things of this nature, I wonder how young fans feel about it because one thing that kirk and zach Lowe mentioned on their discussion about this was maybe just if you're used to this if this is all you've known for the last five years maybe you don't think it's abnormal we look at it right and it's like wow there's a lot of threes being shot and no one is standing in the paint but maybe it's completely normal to everyone else do you have any thought on that
1: yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, you you can't kind of put yourself in the mindset of somebody that wasn't around during, you know, the era of Patrick Ewing and Alonzo Mourning and all those guys. I mean, I think we all have uh, fans of a certain age, journalists of a certain age, have a little nostalgia about it. But yeah, I mean, I think. It, this also presupposes that there is something sort of wrong with or inferior with the amount of threes that are being shot i mean if i i look at the game right now and i'm always amazed at how good the players are just at like a baseline it's uh, the, the level of play is so much higher now than it was 10 years ago much less in the 90s it's sort of if you zoom out and I think because of all this chatter that's been going on I've been watching these games sort of thinking about that uh, more over the past week And I've just been like, wow, these guys are just skilled. Like, it's unbelievable. It used to be the case that, what was it? Like, some absurd percentage of every human that was alive that was seven feet tall. Right, right, played in the NBA, right. I think that number is probably going down, and I think it's no coincidence that it's not enough just to be big anymore. You have to. It, the teams are prizing skill uh, as much or more as they are prizing height, uh, and and uh, I think that has fundamentally changed. And the three point shot is a large part of that because shooting is one of the most prized skills in the game. But I think just the overall baseline level of basketball skill in the game today is as high, higher, much higher than it than it had been. Uh, in any other era of the game. So in that sense, what are we all complaining about? I have a little bit more of an issue with the foul drawing than I do with the three-point shooting if we're kind of picking apart things to point fingers at with the way Houston plays.
0: You know what we need here, Neil? We we need a good old 538 poll that, that can <laughs> model what's coming for the younger fan. That's what we need.
1: Yeah, well, figuring out what's coming is also an interesting question because, you know, I, I like the way the game is right now, and I don't know what it's going to look like when uh, the rest of the league sort of equalizes to, um, you know, Houston levels of three-pointers, and maybe it will get tedious to watch a guys miss you know, 65% or more than that, uh, almost, uh, of, of their shots, you know, in any given game because they're only shooting threes. Maybe that, you know, uh, I, I don't know how to necessarily anticipate what it looks like. But right now it's like, wow, these guys are good.
0: So speaking of three-point shooting, let's talk about Ben Simmons.
1: Sure. The the antithesis.
0: Yes. So you, <laughs> you actually wrote something about him I think it was – was it earlier in this season? It all bleeds together believe, now.
1: Yeah, I believe it was earlier in the season. Yeah. Uh, it, may, it may have been after the Christmas um, – one of the showcase games. I think it might have been the Christmas Day game um, when, when it just – against a good team, I felt like there was something where Ben Simmons was less effective because he didn't have shooting range.
0: Right, so that prompted there's – a, there's a small study in the piece that you ran on – uh, star players against higher quality teams. I've tried to look at stuff like this over the years. The, the challenge, I think, with what you had in that piece was it was, I think it was in December. It was in December or January, so you didn't have too much data. the The samples were relatively small still. But what I found interesting also in that piece was this idea that you had after that, which was Simmons against quality teams kind of reducing or changing his role, possibly for the betterment of the 76ers. And fast forward to this week, what timing all of a sudden, right? All of a sudden, I don't know if you caught game three, but it's starting to look to me like the Philadelphia team I saw in game three and some parts of game two was almost a different team philosophically. And I thought a lot of that had to do with Butler increasing in primacy and Ben Simmons shifting maybe into this role that maybe you can speak a little more about uh based on that research
1: well yeah certainly if you look at simmons in this uh series in particular he has a usage rate of 13.3 percent which i think is just astonishing um he he was at 22.1 percent during the regular season uh and so i think that that does speak to sort of you know when you're a player that has very obvious strengths and and also some pretty um you know, glaring shortcomings. Those are going to naturally be easier to exploit by a uh, a good team, a well coached team, you know, than they are by um, just in the ebb and flow. Especially when you're facing the same team multiple times in a row, and these matchups start to actually sort of come into focus. Uh, so I'm really interested in this idea of what just in general, the differences between the regular season and the playoffs and sort of what drives certain teams to sort of be better on paper than they actually are once they get into the playoffs. But then the flip side of that uh, and – yeah, it seems to actually be working uh, in a certain way for Philly to ask uh, Simmons to take this back seat uh, that we would never expect necessarily a player of his um his skill, but also his, you know, reputation and his track record to take. Uh, and yet, at the same time, you know, the team seems to be, you know, at at best, no worse (laughs) for it, I guess, is the best way uh, to to describe it. Um, And and I don't know, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I think the the shift for him in the video profile I did him in this year, the shift for him to playing more like a big man in the half court is natural, because he almost has assumed that all season anyway. I I think what's interesting is ramping that up in the sense of saying, well, we're actually going to have Butler kind of run the show more quote unquote run the show more they still have a lot of the same offensive principles from what I can tell in these last couple of games but the idea of him what I've seen online is this idea of him being Philadelphia's Draymond Green meaning I mean obviously Draymond Green can at least hit a three-pointer but meaning you've, sometimes yeah, <laughs> sometimes um but, but that's
1: something compared with Simmons.
0: yes 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 so you wouldn't have that dimension But I think the idea is it would free him to give more effort on defense. He's already a very good defender, very versatile defender. And then specifically on offense, you have a player who you're really not interested per se in him creating offense or creating his own offense. Instead, he serves as this Swiss army knife connective tissue because he's a fantastic passer. He can make extra passes on the roll or in dynamic situations. He's a good screener. He can finish around the rim. He he can offensive rebound. And even in his case, I think his best offensive weapon is that little right-handed hook when he gets someone down on the block. So instead of running a play for that, you run other stuff with more dangerous players vis-a-vis Joel Embiid and Jimmy Butler and then you have Simmons kind of augment their value. This, this to me, is a, a new sort of more positive perspective than the way he's been playing. That's at least how I've seen it the last couple of games. I'm fascinated.
1: Well, yeah, and I think that's also like kind of a luxury to have if you are the Sixers and you already have a player like Butler who can kind of create and run the show especially in the half court you have Embiid who just seems to be growing in power with every 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 passing game with every burger every burger (laughs) Uh, and, and you have you know Tobias Harris somebody that they picked up in the middle of the season to sort of do some of the, like, fill in and check off some of the boxes that Simmons can't check off. uh, I think it's a really interesting team-building mechanic because also Simmons, I mean, he's dynamite in transition, and, and you can almost afford to have, like, he's like this transition specialist uh, on the team uh, in terms of offense. And then in the half court, you can kind of use him as that, like you said, the Swiss army knife, but you're not really at, you know, you ask him to take the lead in transition, but then back off a little bit and take a different role in, in the half court. And that's a really uh, amazing role. If you can find a guy that can do it and have the luxury to have other guys who can fill in, in the half court when, when you're, you know, star slash role player, like, I don't even know what it is. It's a hybrid between a star and a role player, um, is, is not sort of taking the reins. Um, and you see other teams that have these guys who are amazing in transition uh, like Giannis, for instance, and he has had to get better and he has gotten better uh, to the point that he's probably the best player in the league uh, in, in terms of creating in the half court and being able to sort of try to add a jump shot and, and you know, do some of the things that uh, add to his game, uh, whereas Simmons, because Philly – has so many other guys, he he sort of can do this hybrid role and they don't need him to sort of expand things out yet. So I think that that's really interesting to think of a player that is at the same time, a role player, a star, a Swiss army knife, a specialist, like it's, it's very fascinating. And he's probably the only player in the league that actually can do that.
0: Yeah. Well, it speaks to how many different ways you can derive value on the basketball court, in the NBA, which has obviously been, one of my favorite topics for years and so in this case you wouldn't be someone who's you know in isolation scoring um dominating an offense setting things up but this is very much like even even the transition connection brings me back to Draymond like Draymond's offensive strengths are passing and pushing the ball in transition that's basically it and if you can connect that to players that Would benefit from having a guy around him. You know, if he only had one of those shooters, I don't think he'd be quite as valuable offensively. But when you put two or even three there, then it's a nightmare. And all of a sudden, it seems like no matter what's happening, who you're playing, what the scheme is, Kavon Looney ends up with three lob dunks every game. It's so you know the the connection to that with Philadelphia and Simmons is something. That I've certainly been thinking about the last couple of days, and then I think it would be interesting to go back because I believe Butler had just arrived in Philly around the time you wrote that piece, right? Remember? Yeah, it
1: wasn't long um, uh, after uh, they traded for Butler, right?
0: And so I think what would be interesting is to look at his change. I mean, we haven't we have an internet, we could look this stuff up. Um, But to look at his change in primacy in all of those numbers, um, usage and anything else that kind of indicates like, okay, now it's not just about Simmons taking a different role in the half court against these good teams. It's also about magnifying a strength that Philadelphia has in Jimmy Butler.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, And and again, that goes back to that luxury of having so much talent. And Philly has been a team that uh, I think – when we do our modeling and we do our projections at 538 we try to sort of do an accounting of a team's underlying talent uh and sort of estimate that based on these plus minus ratings of each player uh, uh and I know you have a similar system um for for kind of player value on that uh and so uh Philly is a team that has always looked better on paper than they played during the season, Uh, and if you had just looked at regular season numbers, you probably would not have necessarily thought that they would be as competitive as they've been uh, in in this particular series, I think, especially. Uh, But when you look at the players that they have on the team, you're like, wow, this is actually a really great collection of talent, and they seem to be figuring out how to sort of piece all of that together um and it's taken them long enough but they're sort of coming around i think right now at the exact right moment uh, of of um finding the right mix for all of those players because it's a new mix you know and basketball is a game of chemistry and uh figuring out how pieces fit with each other uh as much as anything and so you know i'm fascinated by what Uh, what adjustments need to be made and what roles need to be filled in order for a team that has a lot of talent on paper to actually have that paid dividends in terms of performance on the court.
0: Yeah. And that's been, as my listeners know, a, a pet topic of mine to study for so many years in terms of how different types of players fit together and how you can build great teams from players fitting together. And that's always been my thing with Um, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. I just feel like neither of them are super scalable players. And when you put them together, you're going to have a clash of primacy, if you will. You just can't have a lot of them working together. And that's also why I'm so particularly intrigued by Philadelphia kind of reworking their offense, perhaps right in front of us. Now, maybe it's a fluke or a temporary thing. I don't know. But it did feel like I was watching A slightly different team all of a sudden in game parts of game two and certainly for all of game three.
1: Yeah, and I don't think you see a player that normally has a 22% usage. uh, And, you know, over the course of three games, 115 minutes drop that to 13% without an injury or without any kind of sort of mitigating factors uh, in the personnel around him, uh, without it being for a reason uh, that, that doesn't happen by, by just happenstance or random, you know, chance, I think, right?
0: Oh, I completely agree. All right. I, I, I want to get to this before you get out of here. Cause I've wanted to pick your brain about this for a while. Um, t- before you go, tell, tell me what you can tell me about your time with the Atlanta Hawks. And specifically, here's what I think people are interested or what I get asked a lot around analytics positions in the NBA these days and things of this nature so I think the first thing is just on a on a general level um, how how integrated would you say analytics are among front offices and teams and how much are they respecting them and using them in your experience
1: well I think it I mean it varied it may not, it may vary less now than it did when I was working. So I joined the Hawks um, at the end of the, I think in the 2013 slash 14 season. Um, And I was brought in by a guy named Dan Rosenbaum, who is like one of the, you know, he should be on the Mount Rushmore of uh, basketball analytics, in my opinion, right next to John Hollinger and Dean Oliver and all these guys. He is the guy that brought, basically adjusted plus minus to the nba in sort of a popular conception um i I think the uh, people working for um the mavericks had done it a little bit before uh and there were some uh hush hush stories about it you know in the early 2000s but dan was able to basically reverse engineer uh, based on just sort of a few bits and pieces that he had heard, uh, that, that, uh, about Dallas's system and create his own adjusted plus minus, um, system that is sort of the backbone of a lot of the stuff that, that, um, people still use today, at least as sort of a, a baseline, uh, when they're kind of evaluating players. Um, and so dan and i had known each other um for a while from going to the sloan conference and going to you know being on the apbr metrics uh message board and all this Uh, and so um he brought me into the hawks and uh we we were remarkably integrated into everything um when i was there the the gm was danny ferry um and mike budenholzer who now is having an amazing season with the bucks was the coach of the hawks and he had just been hired i think and so um They, uh, yeah, we we would sit in on meetings with the, you know, the front office staff um, uh, where we would go through and, you know, talk about, I think before each season, we would evaluate every player in the league and sort of grade them. And the, the scouts certainly had, you know, a voice in there. And so did the, um, so did the analytics people. And we sort of came to a consensus about each player in that way. Uh, And that's the way it really was for everything. And, 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 you know, I was given the opportunity to present original research in front of the GM and the assistant GM, you know, in the whole room, uh, and, you know, given the floor for, you know, a 20 minute presentation. Um, and and so I, I think it was pretty empowering, um, uh, in that particular situation. And I was really proud of the way the Hawks played in 2015. That was the 60 win season, because I felt like that was the full realization of, um, Coach Bud's system to that point, uh, which was sort of, as we're seeing with the Bucs, it it was about sort of taking some of these analytical principles and putting them to use uh, and trying to maximize a group of talent to get the most that you could out of it. And that team, you know, it didn't really have any superstars. Paul Millsap was probably, um, and Al Horford were the two best players on the team. But Kyle Korver had an amazing year shooting the ball. Damari Carroll played uh, really well. Jeff Teague was the point guard. Dennis Schroeder, very young Dennis Schroeder was there. Tabo Cephalosha um, uh, was was the defensive specialist until he got injured uh, in a really unfortunate incident. Uh, late in the season, and so to me, that was sort of if you're looking at Milwaukee right now, you, you could see the the origins of that with um, with that 2015 Hawks team, and that was a team that I think um, the, both the coaching staff and the front office uh, had Dan and and. and you know, the analytics people uh, that did include me, you know, sort of in their ear, they, they were listening to us. And I thought that that was a really um, great situation to be in. I've heard uh, stories about people that were in less empowering situations as, um, as uh, analytics consultants with other franchises. But I think the way that things are moving is that, more teams are sort of taking the approach that the Hawks did in that time, which was giving a voice to not, you know, not giving an undue voice to any one perspective of looking at the game, but listening to all of them and trying to come to sort of synthesize them into some sort of consensus.
0: So what I got from that is Neil Payne responsible for 60 win hawk season. <laughs> I just, that's my notes. Yeah, no, uh, I, I circled that big letters. over
1: replacement analyst uh, uh, may be positive in that season, but pr- it could have been zero. <laughs> do, do
0: you have analytics on the analytics people? That's the, that's the, re- no, I'm joking. I'm totally. Well,
1: joking. you know, uh, there was analytics. I, I haven't done this for the NBA, but we did a project um, when Ben Lindbergh and Rob Arthur were here at 5:38. Uh, where we looked at the, um, basically the directories of each team's front office and tried to pick out the, um, the the roles that looked like they were sort of earmarked for analytics and trace the, first of all, figure out which teams had the largest analytics staffs, but then also um, try to correlate with that with how successful the team was and trace the, the rise of that going back a, a few years. And that was a really interesting exercise. So it can be done in some way. Uh, you can't parse out credit probably to, to each um, analyst, but you can figure out, um general trends i think uh, by looking at some of these directories and things
0: i do have a power rankings of analytics front office i can't share it but oh okay. i do have no i it's proprietary <laughs> yes it's a proprietary it's i have a whole system um it involves some kind of adjusted plus minus for the staff whenever they're at the games it's a whole sure. yeah there's a lot of lineup data in the background um on a serious note the thing the thing that i'm actually Really curious about, and I don't know how much you can speak to it, but listening to you talk through that, I think one of the challenging things with analytics or research in any field—I've had this professionally in technology before—is how you can present that information to the relevant people so it actually is influential or takes. You know, so whether that yeah. whether that's management or front office, whether that's coaches. Or whether that's players, I'm curious if you have any insight onto success or challenges with getting buy-in. I mean, I obviously the 60 win Hawks, you must have felt like you had some buy-in, but maybe you can speak to that.
1: Yeah, and I think we were lucky to be in a situation where um, Dan had already sort of laid the groundwork for everyone else in the in, in, analytics operation to be listened to because he and Danny Ferry went back to the calves. Uh, and, um, they, I think when you, I think the big thing is seeing results coming out of it. And, um, as long as you can sort of prove that, that things work, you get people's attention. Uh, and that, that applies to not just, um, the the front office but that applies to the coaching staff that applies to in particular uh, I think the players when when they realize that a certain thing could sort of help them uh, get better at their game and that's why it feels a little weird to kind of lament some of the things that Harden is doing because that is a case of a player who already he would be a great player without any of the, the, the sort of sneaky tricks and, and uh, trying to draw fouls and, and rule bending that he does, uh, but he's an even greater, more efficient player for it. Uh, and so it feels a little weird to criticize someone for doing that when that is sort of the same thing that as analysts, we encourage everyone to do from the front office on downward to the to the you know the training staff, uh, just the whole organization of using data and trying to identify areas where you could get better and ways to sort of get there, a roadmap to get there. So I, I think that you know getting the buy-in is probably the hardest part, and a lot of that just comes to um, in some ways the luck of the draw of. You know, having early success, I think, will give you a lot more leeway and a lot more buy-in down the line. Um, and you could just as easily have had a poor season when you've come in through no fault of the analytics. Uh, but if if you do, then there's a much higher chance that the coaching staff is going to tune you out. Uh, for instance, um, if if you don't have a good season, so I, I think some of it comes down to just the circumstance of. You know, you try to put a uh, process over outcomes, but at the end of the day, you are judged on those outcomes and, and those can make a big difference in the amount of buy-in that you ultimately end up having.
0: Really, really interesting stuff. It's amazing to sit here and listen to this and think about where analytics were 10 or 15 years ago. Um, so just just really fascinating stuff. And also maybe to go full circle back to the beginning before I let you go, if you have if you have time. As you're, as you're talking through this, I'm I'm thinking about what we were saying with James Harden and exploiting the rules and three-point three shot fouls and realizing that one of the biggest challenges right now with his step back and these three-shot fouls and all of the controversy around this series largely has to do with the fact that defenses have never seen it before. They've never seen someone jump backwards basically to shoot and then because he's so far away the physics the momentum carries him forward and you beget this landing space discussion that has been discussed ad nauseum for the last week but um you know i'm i'm not sure i'm not sure what my point is even necessarily i'm just realizing (laughs) that there's there's something to that
1: Well, and it's also, as much as it is that the opposing defense hasn't seen it before, it's even weirder to think about the fact that in a lot of these cases, the referees haven't seen it before. Right, exactly. And it's it's a case where, you know, we can all sort of look at uh, some of the ways that Harden draws fouls and say, look, you know— You hooked your arm under this defender's arm and you went up. You never had an intention of making that shot. That was not a legitimate shot attempt. You're just using the letter of the law to get free throws out of it. But that's something that players have been doing in some way, shape, or form forever. That's something that referees can kind of – they they know when someone is ultimately crying wolf and they sort of, I think they internally regulate, this is just me. I have no evidence of this, but I do think the referees sort of regulate how much they allow based on What they've seen. And and if you've seen it your whole career as a referee, it's a lot easier to do that. I think in some of these cases where you haven't seen it and and there isn't necessarily a lot of great guidance in the rule book to describe how to actually uh, assess a particular situation that makes it a lot more difficult and that's why it's been so controversial uh because you know ultimately the rule books are trying to anticipate anything that might come up where someone might be trying to sort of skirt the rules but every so often I guess there are these players or these entities that sort of push things so far that they actually are ahead of where the rule book ever thought anyone would be. And this might be one of those situations uh, with, with Harden and the, uh, the step back in general, but then, you know, is it a travel? Is it not a travel? I guess technically it's not because of the number of steps that he takes, but he's taking them in the wrong direction of the basket. It's just very uncomfortable. Uh, And then when it comes to the landing space, yeah, it's a great question. And even I think in that game, the referees didn't apply a very consistent standard of what was considered to be acceptable contact and what wasn't considered to be acceptable contact to the point that when Harden did uh, I think uh, he was the one initiating the contact on that potential game-tying game, uh, game tying shot uh, at, at the end of regulation. Uh, but he had been fouled, I think, legitimately uh, by Clay Thompson on just the previous yeah, time that yep. he had done it. And so it, I think it, one of the reasons it became so controversial was also because the refs didn't apply a consistent standard, and it's very difficult to apply a consistent standard when there is no necessarily precedent or guidance to sort of help you in the in the letter of the rules
0: well that's a great point about them catching up I still even feel like that little hook move he does you know the the rip through kind of I feel the guys absolutely I I I still don't really understand frankly why that's not an offensive foul Um, but to his credit and to your point this is something that I actually didn't notice when he started doing, you know, you had to kind of like slow the film down and you kind of have to be like, you see it over and over again. And you say, wait a second, someone's putting their hand in the cookie jar, but Harden's grabbing it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so on the, who on, is
1: truly initiating contact. Right, in that situation, and who has
0: an advantage. That's the other right. one that gets me. So uh, that, that philosophical point aside, the, the three point, the step back and the three pointer I went back and looked at a ton of film and your, again, it's just physics. When you are closer to the hoop or your gravity is underneath you and you're centered and you're balanced, your landing area won't move forward a lot. And so this, this idea of an unnatural landing area being two and two and a half feet in front of you. Well, you try jumping back as hard as you can five or six feet and then shooting you're going to go forward more than you right. normally do and this is i mean talk about a rapid adjustment like this is i think the the meat of what's happening right now is how do i contest that shot as a defender and some teams and
1: who and who is entitled to you know do yeah. you give up the right to the space that you just vacated or are you still entitled to the space that you just were in but are not in at the start of the shot but then go back into by the end of the shot
0: well there seems to be this idea that the landing space is fluid, and if you drift forward slightly, that's okay. We don't want the Zaza, Kawhi Leonard. Oh, okay, I, underst- right. Right. I understand the genesis of that, and I'm perfectly fine with it myself, just for me. But if you take that same concept, all of a sudden on a step back, there's, there's an element where you could interpret it and say, actually, you can't really contest this because you right. need to let the player come back forward.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it does come down to, you know, they talk about um, who has the air rights above, like, uh, below buildings, you know, have you ever heard of this where, like, you know, uh, buildings will be built over other ones? And uh, do they have the air rights over that building? I think that is sort of the same concept of, like, who has the right to a certain space on the court when they are occupying it, but then do they have the right to come back into it uh, as part of their uh, follow through, you know, and, and landing from a shot. And I, I don't think that the rules are necessarily as clear as I think everyone wants them to be.
0: So your next expose for Five I'm expecting to be on airspace of buildings. Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll look forward to that. Neil Payne, thanks so much for stopping by. This was great. I, I appreciate all the insight and the time.
1: Thanks, Ben. It's great to, to finally be a guest on the podcast after reading so much of your stuff over the years.
0: Any uh, Anything you want to leave the people with, what you got going on in your own life, um, things they can look forward from you in the future?
1: Well, you can listen to me podcast uh, myself in uh, 538 Sports Podcast. It's called Hot Takedown. Uh, it comes out every uh, Tuesday evening. You can find it on all the usual uh, places like iTunes and Stitcher and, uh, you know, even Spotify now these days. Um, but also, you can find my work at 538.com. I write about uh, just about every sport there is. Um, and I think I'll have a piece about baseball up on the site on Monday.
0: Big, big thanks to Neil for stopping by and taking the time. And of course, big thanks to all my patrons who support me over at patreon.com slash thinking Basketball and really help me make these podcasts. If you like these and you want to help me make more, I've had a lot of requests for higher frequency in the playoffs, so I am certainly trying to hit that mark as we get into the meat of the playoffs over the next four to six weeks. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Basketball, sign up, support, check it out. There's different tiers. For $2, you get access to some of the articles, and behind-the-scenes things I put out. And then for $4, you also get access to all of my historical stats, proprietary stats. Most of them go back to the Shot Clock in 1955 for every player. Uh, In time, I'm always trying to update those lists, so in time, hopefully, I will release more. It's also the best way to get in touch with me if you have questions. Sometimes they fall through the cracks on Twitter and on YouTube, so if you're a regular and that sounds interesting, go check it out. Otherwise, as always, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you guys are having a great day. See you next time.